Okay, if I had any, any problems before I came here today, they were all washed away in the song, All Creatures of Our God and King. Thank you for playing that, Stephen. He knows I love that song. It's the, it's the well, I won't say that. It's the Rocky theme song of uh, spiritual life. <laughs> On Sunday nights, we recently completed a study of the book of Ezra. Sunday night crowd will wonder why I'm doing this. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, Mike, uh, knowing he's going to be gone this Sunday and next Sunday, now I'm not going to be preaching next Sunday morning, Stephen is, but Mike, knowing he's going to be gone, asked me, can you consider the possibility of preaching uh, a character sketch of the life of Ezra? Since you've spent time on, in the book of Ezra, can you talk about his life in general? Well, I said, I'll, I'll think about that. And after thinking how I could do that, it's kind of like putting... Maybe four sermons into one, five sermons into one. I came to the conclusion that it would be best to focus on one aspect of his life mainly and other, add some other details as we go along in the rest of his life. Because as the author of Hebrews 11.32 says, time would fail me to tell the whole story of his life. Now, why study the life of Ezra? Why is Mike requesting this? Why should I do this? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, why we shouldn't do this. We should not study the life of Ezra. We're not studying the life of Ezra to find out what a great man he was. That's not why we're doing this. Rather, we are studying his life to see what a great God he serves. Because you will find in the life of Ezra that he is truly serving a great God. His life is so intertwined with the Lord, Ezra's is, such a man of God, such a man of the word, walks so closely with God that his his, Ezra's purposes, Ezra's goals, Ezra's intents, Ezra's desires are all lined up with the Lord. They're in tune with the Lord's. So if, if, if Ezra lived today, we would say, this man is Christ-like. He loves the Lord. He wants to do what the Lord wants him to do. Ezra loved what the Lord loved. And you'll see that as we read these, uh, go through these uh, verses. Ezra hated what the Lord hated. His life was totally wrapped up in the Lord and in his word And so to study the life of Ezra is to profit us spiritually because Ezra will point us to the Lord. So we need to think about this. So let me give you a brief setting in the book of Ezra. If you weren't here on the Sunday nights that we did this, so you'll understand a little bit about what's going on. The book of Ezra takes place, as Ken, Ken talked about this morning, after the Babylonian captivity. After that happens. God judged his people, the Jews. I'm giving you the short version of history here, Israeli history judged his people, the Jews, because they rebelled against them over the years. They were idolaters. They got into idolatry, all this stuff. And so he judged them. And Babylon came and captured them and deported them to Babylon, about 900 miles away from Jerusalem and other places as well. And they spent about 70 years in captivity in Babylon. Eventually, that ended. The Persians came and captured uh, the Babylonians, defeated the Babylonians, and they became the rulers of this great world empire, the Persians ruled basically the same empire the Babylonians did, some variation. The Jews maintained a settlement in this area, this city, or this region, province called Babylon, within the Persian empire. They were settled down there, getting used to life there. This is after the captivity. They kind of got settled down there, kind of got a little bit comfortable. Even though they're under Persian rule, Persians are, Persians are very nice to these people compared to the Babylonians. But God said, look, I want you people to return. You're not going to stay here forever in Babylon slash Persia. I want you to return 
get out of here, and I want you to go back to Israel and reestablish what we had over there. Reestablish the temple, build it. The temple's destroyed by Babylon. I want you to worship me in my own land. I want you to rebuild the city, and the, and the wall is broken down. So I want you to return. And he touched the hearts of some, Ezra chapter 1. Touched the heart of King Cyrus, king of Persia. Touched the hearts of some of his people. And they returned on the first return. The first return is recorded in chapters 1 to 3 of Ezra. Then there's a second return in Ezra. That's in chapters 7 and 8. Ezra is going to head that second return to Israel. Now I want to encourage you, when you get a chance so you'll understand all this better, read chapters 7 through 10 of the book of Ezra. There's a key phrase that Adam read a couple times. We're going to see it used more often than that. A key phrase used in the book of Ezra to describe and characterize this man, Ezra. And look at chapter 7, verse 6. You'll see the phrase there. It says, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested. Here's the phrase. Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Look at verse 9. On the first day of the first month, Ezra began to go up from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, four months later, he came to Jerusalem. Why? Because the good hand of his God was upon him. Look at verse 27, chapter 7, verse 27. Ezra is praying because the king is treating king of Persia is treating him so well, and is back this return to Israel. And Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Look at chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, rather, verse 18. Beginning of the verse. Ezra says, according to the good hand of our God upon us. You see this phrase again and again, and, and every time you see it, it's worded a little differently than it was before. Sometimes it simply says, uh, Ezra says, the hand of the Lord his God. Other times it says, the good hand of God upon him. Other times it says, the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Another time it says, the hand of the Lord upon us, upon Ezra and the people following his leadership back to Jerusalem. Now, what does it mean when we say the hand of God is upon Ezra? Well, as you look in, the, in the con- these various contexts, Ezra 7 and 8, you are able to see, you're, you're able to draw some conclusions as to what this phrase means. First of all, this phrase has to do with God's favor upon Ezra. God's favor. For example, chapter 7, verse 6, again, go back there. The end of that verse, it says, the king of Persia, this is the king of Persia, mighty king, granted him, Ezra, all he requested. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And as you read through chapters 7 through 10, again and again, the Lord's hand, you will see the Lord's favor upon Ezra. The Lord will open doors for Ezra. The Lord was good to Ezra. The good hand of God is upon Ezra. So clearly, Ezra is favored by God. Another way to look at this is that the phrase has to do with God's protection or oversight of Ezra. Go to chapter 8. Ezra and the people are going to make a journey. That's what chapter 7 and 8 are about. There's going to be a journey 
They're in Persia, Babylon slash Persia. They're going to make a journey to Jerusalem. That is going to be a 900-mile walk. You ever walked 900 miles before? Not fun. It's going to take them four months. It's going to be through the hottest part of the year. Really hot and miserable. And as I said to the crowd on Sunday night, no air conditioning back in those days. Furthermore, there are bandits known to be along that roadway that they're going to travel. They could have gone the 500-mile route through the desert, but that's not fun. Who wants to go through the desert? They've chosen this other route. So they're going to go through this long route. There's bandits known to be along the way, thieves, enemies of the people that can ambush them. Not to mention the fact that According to chapter 7, again, it's good for you to read chapter 7 through 10. Chapter 7, 11 through 20, uh, King Artaxerxes being very kind to the people, kind to Ezra, kind to the Jews, gives them tons of silver and gold to take with them. Here, here's a bunch of money. Take this with you. It's going to help you in your cause over there in Jerusalem. I want to help you guys. Well, that's great. But there's a bunch of bandits along the way. And they have no protection. Why? Wasn't the king interested in their protection. He was. We'll see what happens in a minute. No military to guard them. They're on their own. Their caravan, furthermore, is made up of families. Fathers, mothers, children. Look at chapter 8, verse 21. Ezra says, this is prior to the journey, getting ready to go. He did what I would do. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, somewhere around the Babylonian area. Wouldn't you? That's a lost start today. Fasting, but I think it's a good time to fast. Facing this and pray, facing this situation, he said, "I proclaim the fast there at, at Ahava, for I was ashamed, or rather, at Ahava, for that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from Him a safe journey. Good idea for us. And look what the next phrase says: our little ones. I'm telling you, this is a dangerous trip, and all our possessions. We're taking children with us." For I was ashamed, Ezra says, look at verse 22. I was ashamed to request from the king's troops and horse, uh, from the king, troops and horsemen. Persia had all kinds of troops and horsemen, all kinds of military. They could have provided any, any kind of protection for this guy. But he says, I was ashamed to ask for protection and for help from the king to protect us from the enemy on the way because I opened my big mouth and I said this to the king. The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. Kind of a gospel in a nutshell right there. Ezra says, I could have had help, could have had military military protection, but I said to the king, no king, God will take care of us. His hand, again, we're talking about the hand of God, is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. And what is Ezra and his people doing in these verses? They're seeking God. Verse 23, so we fasted. We sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. God helped him. He answered the prayer. Ezra could have had this help from this idolatrous king. King was kind to him, but he was still an idolater, worshipped his own gods. But he wanted this idolatrous king to know God is faithful to his people. God can take care of us, and I want you to know that. God, we don't need your help. Yes, we appreciate your help. We don't need it because God can take care of us. Look at chapter 8, verse 31. Then Ezra says, we journeyed, notice the we section here, we journeyed from the river of Ahava on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes, by the way, you see, 
possible attacks along the way that, that could have happened. God prevented that from happening. The hand of protection was over them. That's one thing that it means when it says the hand of God is on Ezra. And as the missionary John Patton would say, by the way, John Patton was a missionary in the 1800s to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. And he wanted to go there, except there was one problem on the, on the New Hebrides Islands. And people warned him, and they said, John, don't you know those people are cannibals? <laughs> and they said, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Now, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I would have gone. <laughs> I doubt seriously I would have gone. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sure I would not have gone, as a matter of fact. Uh, but John Patton went, and he knew what he was getting into when he got there. This is a dangerous place. They, if they kill me and then they eat me, it's all over. But John Patton, while he was there, said this. After he thought about this, he said, I realized, think about this, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. I'm here as long as God wants me here. I, whatever the dangers there may be, nevertheless, God can protect me through these dangers as long as he wants me around to do his work. The same was true of Ezra. God got him to Jerusalem safely. Now, both these points, God's favor upon Ezra, God's protection of Ezra, could be under the general heading of God's providence. I could have said that. This is God's providence. I will say that at, in times. But I want you to see this more specifically, the specific aspects of God's providence, God's favor upon him, God's uh, protection of him, God's oversight of him. Now, if I were to sum this phrase up, God's hand is on Ezra, I guess we could say this, God's blessing is upon Ezra in a very personal and direct way. This isn't, I'm going to be honest with you, this is not true of every believer out there, what's happening right here. It's just not. I'll talk about that in a minute. But through Ezra, it was. I'm talking about a very personal way, and I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you why it was. God is accomplishing God's purpose through Ezra. Ezra is, is committed to God's purpose. And so God's hand is on him because Ezra want God, wants God to do God's will through his life, and he does it. Let me ask you a question. Is that what you and I are all about? This is what you're going to think about during this message. Is this what we're about? Are we about the will of God and his purposes? Or do we have another purpose of our own to fulfill? You have your own ideas of what, what you're going to do in life. Now, before we move on, let me clarify what I just said with two more thoughts so you'll understand. Number one, I realize that all who are in Christ are blessed by God. Would you agree? The Bible says this. We know this. Everybody in Christ is blessed by God. We're eternally safe in his hands. We know this. I will say also, if you're, if you're not a believer in Christ, you're not eternally safe. Not at all. You're on your way to a devil's hell. And you need salvation in Christ. If you don't know the Lord, you're not safe. You're not blessed of Christ at all. You're not that way. He's the way, he said, the truth and the life. No man comes into the Father but through Christ. There's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the way. And the Lord would have you put away your sin and turn to Christ if you're in that condition. But back to believers. It's true that all believers are blessed in Christ. But... It's also true that not all believers are walking in close communion with the Lord like Ezra did. They're not wholly committed to the Lord like Ezra was. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Ezra was a super saint. I mean, I could never reach his status. You know, he was the man when it comes to spirituality. But what did Ezra say? And go back to chapter 8, verse 22. What did we just read in chapter 8, verse 22? What did Ezra himself say? 
By the way, Ezra never did any miracles. He didn't do all that. He was, he was a man, just a man, who was just being used of God in his circumstances. Ezra said in chapter 8, verse 22, The hand of our God is favorably disposed to whom? Who? To all those who seek him, right? Not just Ezra. Not just Zerubbabel earlier on in Ezra chapter 1, 2, and 3. Not just those guys, the spiritual, you know, bigwigs. It's to everybody who is serious about God. If you are serious about God, you can expect God's hand to be upon your life. You can expect that. It's for anybody who is who's in tune with his purposes. That's who it's for. Anyone who's seriously committed to the Lord. Seriously, I said seriously committed to the Lord. I'm not talking about this half-hearted, me-first, uh, you know, uh, selfish, lackadaisical, I'll do what I feel like mentality is so prevalent today among Christians. I'm not talking about that. Those people do not have the hand of God upon them in this manner, in this special way. Ezra was a man who let the grace of God work in his life, and he flourished spiritually. So I want to say that, that although all are blessed, some are especially blessed because they are seriously committed to Christ. Secondly, a person whose life the hand of God is upon is not exempt from trials. Not exempt from trials. Ezra endured his own trials. He had his own trials to face. And yet God's hand is clearly on him. Just because God's hand is on you doesn't mean you're problem-free. Not problem-free. Don't misunderstand. So why does the Bible say that God's hand was upon Ezra? And what does it mean for us today? I think Ezra 7 holds the answer to that. Now, in Ezra 7, as I said... And I'm kind of having to sum certain things up here. Plans and preparations are being made to go on a journey. I've already mentioned that journey is going to take Ezra and his people, uh, some probably 5,000 people or so is estimated, to, to Jerusalem. And they're going to, Ezra's going there to teach the Word of God, to enforce the law of God. The law of God is the Word of God. And that will be his mission. First of all, let's look at Ezra's background. His background, the first six verses. Verse 1 says, now after these things. After what things? After the events of chapters 1 to 6 took place? 57 years later. When chapter 6 ends, 57 years pass. And now we're in chapter 7. And what we have here is a new king reigning in Persia. In chapter 6, it was King Darius. Chapter 7, it's King Artaxerxes. If you're a history fanatic... Let me just throw out a couple dates quickly, and I'll move on, I promise. Artaxerxes reigned from 464 B.C. to 423 B.C., 4th century B.C. The focus of chapters 8, 7 and 8 are on the year 458 B.C. All right, as we look at his background, let's consider his genealogy. Look at verses 1 to 5 again, chapter 7. Adam read all those names. Thank you, Adam. Notice I had the teacher read the Hebrew names for us today. His genealogy, verse 1, Ezra, at the, end of it, at the end of the verse says, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah. Kind of makes it easy when, you, when they all sound the same, right? Son of Shalom. Go to verse 5. List all these names. Son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This is a selective genealogy. So you say, I don't care about genealogies in the Bible. Well, you should because they have a purpose. A selective genealogy. Only key names are mentioned here. But the point of these, this genealogy is this. It's to trace back Ezra's ancestry to Aaron, 
the high priest of Israel. Aaron, the brother of Moses. Aaron, the high priest of Israel. He's from the Aaronic line, which means this. Aaron, or rather Ezra, is, is qualified to lead the people of God spiritually. He's qualified. He could, he's a priest. And that would have been very important to the people when he arrived in Jerusalem. Oh, Ezra is a priest. Not just anyone could be a priest. You had to meet God's qualifications. And Ezra doesn't appear on the scene by accident, <clears throat> randomly. This is God's purpose. He's raising up Ezra for this moment. And you can trace it back all the way through all these years. And yet here comes Ezra on the scene, scene just at the right time, like Christ in Galatians 4, which says he came just at the right time. Notice his occupation. Look at verse 6. It says Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses. A scribe. The word scribe probably intended to tell us two things. Number one, first of all, a scribe was an official of the king. Probably like a private secretary, a royal secretary of some kind. So Ezra, like Daniel, acts in an official capacity for the king. His boss is King Artaxerxes whom he knows. He's very well acquainted with Artaxerxes. The commentators say something like this. Ezra was, like a secret, uh, was kind of a secretary on behalf of the religious institutions for Judah or maybe a secretary for Jewish affairs. Understand, Persia, were, they ruled many countries in the world. And, uh, and so they had to deal with all these countries politically. And here's Ezra in charge of Jewish affairs, we could say. He works for the Persian government. But the word scribe also means one who studies and interprets and copies scripture. Ezra, it says, was the, law, was the scribe of the law of Moses. And you can tell he took this very seriously because what does it say about him? It says he was skilled. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Ezra has been described as the scribe of the highest order, one who's skilled to do what he did. And he certainly was that. He had access to at least five books of the Bible. First five books of the Bible, no doubt. Maybe he had other parts of it we don't know. But I will tell you one thing, whatever he had access to, he had knew it like the back of his hand, backwards and forwards. Now, the law of Moses that Ezra was skilled in was not just another book, because look what verse 6 says. It goes on to say that this law of Moses is that which the Lord God of Israel had given, probably Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's that which the Lord God of Israel had given. Now, there's all kinds of books in the world. I love books. I love to read. All kinds of books in the world. But there's only one book that's inspired of God. And you know, when you read books, especially history, you'll find that historians have different points of view and perspectives on what the time period they're covering. One guy will say, I think I want to interpret this historical event like this. Another guy says, I want to interpret it like this. Guess what? Those guys have a, they have perspective, but God has a correct perspective. And his word always, it's always perfect. It's only one divine, divinely inspired word, and that is the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16, we all know it. All scripture is inspired of God, or better, as Ken said in his Sunday school lesson. Today, all scripture is breathed out by God. The scripture breathed out by God. And Ezra had part of that scripture. Today, we have had the privilege of having the completed revelation of God, Old Testament and New Testament. This is a gift from God. Do you ever think of that? that the Bible you hold in your hand is a gift from God. He gave us his book. He gave this to us. I love the fact that the doctrine of inspiration is not only mentioned in the classic passages like 2 Timothy 3, but it's in Ezra, this obscure passage, in many ways an obscure passage. It should not be an obscure passage, but it is oftentimes. It's mentioned here. It's mentioned in other places as well. <clears throat> now, if you go to our website, 
you can read our philosophy of ministry. We have four cornerstones in our, in our philosophy of ministry. The second one is this. It says the supremacy of Scripture. We hold the Scripture here as supreme. We believe it's the Word of God inspired, and it's profitable for all that we do spiritually. In our statement, <clears throat> we say this about the supremacy of Scripture. Scripture is accurate. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. How can we make such bold statements? I can hear people now, oh, what are you people making these kind of statements for? How can we make such bold statements about the Scripture? It's because the Word was given by the Lord. He gave it to us, and that is why we say it's accurate. Why would the Lord give us an inaccurate book? That's why we say it's authoritative. It's from God, right? That's why we say it's sufficient, because it's good for all manner of life and godliness. It's all, it's, everything about this is just the way God intended it to be. Now, I've asked this question before. I'll ask it again. Does your dedication to the Scripture, think about this, does your dedication to the Scriptures or your lack of dedication to the Scriptures reflect your true view of inspiration? Does it? In other words, if we say that Scripture is inspired of God, if you say this, then you will give it the time of day that it deserves. But if you don't give it the time of day it deserves and you really don't care about the Scripture and your personal interaction with the Scripture, maybe you don't really believe it's inspired of God. Where do you stand on this? Verse 6 goes on to say that the king granted Ezra all that he requested. Think about this. The most powerful king in the world at this time, King Artaxerxes, called himself the king of kings. He was in an earthly sense. Now, he didn't... We know who the real king of kings is, right? Christ. But on earth, he said, I'm the king of kings. He's right. No other king was greater than than he was on the earth. The greatest empire in the world at that time. And he's ready to give Ezra whatever he needs to do the will of God. Ezra does the will of God through this king, of all things. That's amazing. God is working through this. Why is this? Is it because King Artaxerxes loves the Lord and is committed to his will? Is that why? No, as I said... He's an idolater. He is worshiping false gods. He has all kinds of gods he worships. The reason that the Persian king caters to Ezra, and you'll you'll see this as you read these chapters so much, is because the hand of God is upon him. God is working through this whole situation. Proverbs 21.1, I said this probably three times on Sunday night. The king's heart is like channels of water, and the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. God works is working out all the details for his people to return to Israel because this is his purpose. And he's using his man, Ezra, to do this. God's working all this out. God's providential oversight of Ezra. That's his background. Let's just for a minute look at Ezra's journey in verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> his journey, some of the scribes, some of the sons of Israel, some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. So in this brief, this is kind of a, a little brief uh, mention of the traveling they're going to do in chapter 8. talks about his traveling companions. There's going to be priests there. There's going to be Levites. There's going to be gatekeepers for the temple they're going to build and the wall. Along with family members, chapter 8, 
Verses 8 and 9 deal with dates of travel and time of arrival and all this. Again, Ezra's going to be successful because the hand of God is upon him. But let's move on to the main focus of our message today. And that would be Ezra's commitment. Verse 10. Ezra's commitment. Verse 10. For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now already we've said a good bit about God's sovereign hand upon the life of Ezra, God's favor upon Ezra, God's oversight of Ezra, God's protection of Ezra, God's providence of Ezra. This is the theme of his life because it says it so often. So it's very obvious that God's providence is behind all the events that happen in Persia. We're not even in Israel yet. In Persia, these things are happening, and then they'll happen on the way and in Israel as well. There's no doubt about this, and I want, you to, I want to establish this in your minds first, that God is at work here. This is the providence of God, and God is doing things which cannot be explained apart from his providence in these chapters, and I want you to know that. And we know the Bible teaches this doctrine, but I want you to know something very important, and this church needs to hear this. I want you to know there's also a companion to divine providence. A companion. And what would that be? That companion to divine providence would be human responsibility. Human responsibility. Spurgeon said these are friends. Sovereignty of God, the providence of God, and human responsibility to God. They are friends. They are not at odds with one another. In our circles, we are quick to acknowledge God's providence. Quick to acknowledge it, because we, we say we're reformed. We like to use that word. But we are slow to admit our responsibility before God. Notice this, we're very slow to admit that. God does not, listen to this statement, God does not exercise his providence in our lives so that we can shirk our spiritual responsibility. That's not why he's doing this. It doesn't work that way. Here's how it works. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Now, God works through salvation. Salvation is totally the work of God, completely his from beginning to end, from A to Z. But for the believer, when God is sanctifying the believer, God is working, and guess what? We're to do something. We're to open our Bibles. We're to pray. We're to seek him. One of the most fascinating words in all the entire Old Testament, to me, is that little three-letter word at the beginning of verse 10. Do you see it? We read it already a few times. Adam read it. What word is that? That's a great arousing answer there. The beginning of verse 10, the word is for, F-O-R, for, or you could translate it because. You say, what's the big deal about that word? Very important word because it is a connecting word. It connects the preceding phrase with what follows in verse 10. Here's what it says. Verse 9 and 10, the good hand of, our, of his God was upon him, upon Ezra, for the reason, or because Ezra has set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach the law of the Lord. This is the human responsibility side. That's what it says. I didn't make that up. That's what it says. This verse is stating that the Lord blessed Ezra as he did because Ezra was fully devoted to the word. God's good hand was upon Ezra because Ezra's hand was upon the word. That's what it says. One writer said about this verse, I love this this quote, this is a warning against a sloppy view of grace. What is a sloppy view of grace? It's one that I've heard from people that says, basically, 
God does everything. We don't do much of anything. No, that's not how it works at all. That's sloppy. It's not just let go and let God. We're responsible. And Ezra shows us that responsibility in depth. Ezra believes in the inspired word. Ezra loves the word of God. Ezra lives the word of God. Ezra wants everyone to hear the word of God. The Lord is pleased with those who honor his word. And the Lord will bless the believer. Get this. The Lord will bless the believer who seriously commits himself or herself to that word. That's what it says. Doesn't Psalm 1 say the same thing? Doesn't it say in Psalm 1 that the person who delights in the law of the Lord, same phrase, and who meditates in it will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Kind of sounds like Ezra. Sounds like a person whose hand, whose, whose uh, life God's hand is upon. Never, ever underestimate your connection to the Word of God and the accompanying blessing that follows it. That's meant to be that way. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm, again, not saying, well, but you don't understand, i got all kinds of problems in my life. It doesn't mean you're going to be problem-free. It doesn't mean you're not going to have trials. But God's blessing is upon those who treasure His Word. This is what the Lord says. Now, we're talking about Ezra's commitment to the Word of God. Verse 10 shows us what that looks like. What does it look like to be committed to the Word of God? How did Ezra approach the Scripture? How should we approach it? <clears throat> well, there are four activities in regard to God's Word, four activities. That if taken seriously, if you take these seriously, <clears throat> literally can revolutionize your life spiritually. Number, the first activity, we must prepare our hearts. We must prepare our hearts. Verse 10 For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. The heart refers to the whole of one's being. It's basically your life. So to set your heart means to fix it, to establish it, to establish your life toward a certain goal. This is a determined effort. It's kind of like Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Determination, a resolute attitude. You've made up your mind. You're going to commit yourself to the scriptures, and that's what you're going to do, and that's how it's going to be. That's what it means. Now, Let me offer the disclaimer. We know that in all we do, we do because God gives us the strength to do it. I'm aware of this, that God enables us to do all that we do. It's by his grace that we do this. However, this verse is speaking of a firm, resolute heart fixed and set upon a particular goal. That goal being, Ezra wants to be a man of the word. Is that what you want? Do you want to be a man or woman or young person or child of the word. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. We all have this opportunity to be people of the word. This is his life's ambition. He devotes himself fully to this task. It's not just an academic exercise. He is serious about this. Now understand this. First and foremost, this idea of being committed to the word is, is a matter of the heart. That's probably where we're going wrong anyway with this. It's a matter of the heart. Read the Bible, read church history. And you're going to find out that everybody God used throughout church history, throughout the scriptures, were people of the word. They were fully committed to the word, and that's, and that's, how, they, that's how they viewed things, committed to the word of God. And I'm not, uh, you, it can never be otherwise. It has to be that way. It's always been that way. And I'm not talking about pastors only. <clears throat> not pa- talking about just preachers or pastors. I'm talking about every believer. You must settle in your heart first. I'm going to be committed to the word of God. You know, our hearts are so prone to wonder from the truth. Always wondering, 
That's why we've got to be committed to have our hearts come back to the Word of God. Could it be the reason we are so inconsistent in the Word? Think about this in your own life. Could it be the reason we are so inconsistent in the Word, so undisciplined to read the Word, so uncommitted to it, is that because we've never established it or fixed it in our heart that this is what we're going to do? This is how we're going to, this is, we're going to make this a priority. I think we need to pray and ask the Lord to change our hearts. So I think we need a good prayer. Is that of the psalmist in Psalm 119? You know, <clears throat> the psalmist, uh, Psalm 119 was the man who was uh, committed to the word. And he prayed <clears throat> in Psalm 119.36, he prayed this, Incline my heart to your testimonies. That's a great prayer. I want to be drawn to your testimonies, your, your testimonies being the word of God. I want to love your word. I want, to be, I want that to be my heart's desire, that I want to be inclined to your word. <clears throat> the preparation of the heart is the first step towards a person being committed to God's word. There's a second activity. We must study the word. <clears throat> Verse 10, we must study the word. Do I have my people here to throw me up uh, something on the screen in a minute? Oh, yeah, it's not there, not yet, but it's coming. Just leave it up there. Let me give you a literal rendering. Well, I'll tell you, leave it down for a second because everybody's going to read that. Let me give you a literal rendering of the verse, verse 10, first. It literally says this, For Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to seek it, and to do it, very simple words, do it, and to teach Israel statutes and ordinances in Israel. The word translated study means to seek. It means a careful search of the scriptures. <clears throat> Ezra examined the scriptures he had available to him to find out exactly what they were saying. If you don't know what they're saying, how, how can you know how to teach, how to understand it? How to teach? You have to know what they're saying first, right? Remember verse 6? Ezra was a scribe, what? Skilled in the law of Moses. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. Now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words. He's learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes to Israel. He was interested in the words, the very words. What do they mean? What do they mean to me? How can I apply them to my life? How can I teach others this word? He was skilled. He didn't settle for mediocrity. He gave it his best. He was a diligent student of the scriptures, not lazy, He sought out what every word meant because the Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word. Old and New Testament. Sorry to inform some of you, the Old Testament is included in this. Like Ken said this morning in Sunday school, I'm thankful that he said that. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, Martin Luther, I thought of Martin Luther as I was thinking of Ezra, was a diligent student of the scriptures and I'll tell you, he was not exactly thrilled with believers who weren't. He was very unhappy with believers who weren't committed to the word. And I want you to listen to a quote. You can go ahead and put the quote up. Thank you, uh, helpers in the back there, whoever did that mysterious trick. <clears throat> listen to this quote from Luther. Can you see it? Some pastors, he said, this is typical of Martin Luther right here, by the way. This is how he wrote all this is how he talked. Some pastors and preachers are lazy and no good. They do not pray. They do not read. They do not search the scripture. The call is, here's what we're supposed to be doing, watch, study, attend to reading. Now listen to this. In truth, you cannot read too much in scripture. Do you agree with that? 
And what you read, you cannot read too carefully. And what you read carefully, you cannot understand too well. And what you understand well, you cannot teach too well. And what you teach well, you cannot live too well. The devil, the world, and our flesh are raging and raving against us. Therefore, dear sirs and brothers, pastors and preachers, pray, read, study, be diligent. This evil, shameful time is not the season for being lazy, for sleeping and snoring. That's typical Luther. What Luther says about pastors can be applied to all believers. You say, well, it's not my job to study the scriptures. But hasn't the Lord called every believer to study the scriptures? Or is it just the job of the pastor? Preacher or not, all believers should be studying and reading the scriptures. Doesn't every believer need to be edified by the word? Doesn't every believer need to be encouraged by the word? Doesn't every believer need to be sanctified by the word, Jesus said? Doesn't every believer need to be convicted by the word on a daily basis? And doesn't this warning against laziness apply to all who name the name of Christ? You know, why can't I, you and I seek the Lord like Ezra did? He said we could. He's the one that said it. We have far more advantages. Think about this. We have far more advantages than Ezra did. Far more. We have a complete Bible. Imagine what Ezra would have done with that. We have access to all kinds of Bibles, and Bible helps. I don't know, maybe he would have been ruined if he'd have lived in our generation. I tell you, I say we're greatly advantaged over Ezra. But are we committed like Ezra was to God's Word? You know, do not treat the Bible as something you'll get to if you have time. Don't do that. We need to be daily at the task of reading the Scriptures, meditating on the Scriptures, so our lives can be different. This is a call to every believer, none exempted. Some may have more time than others. Of course, pastor, that's, pastors, that's what they do. They study the scriptures and, and all that. They preach. <clears throat> but, you know, everybody has time to get into the word every day. And everybody should give time to that pursuit. 2 Timothy 2.15, <clears throat> be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman. That goes along with Luther's, Luther's quote. Not lazy, you're a workman, a worker <clears throat> who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth, that describes Ezra. And guess what? It should describe all of us, too. Thirdly, third activity, we must obey the word. Prepare our hearts. We study the word. We must obey the word. Where it says we must practice, it says in, in, in Nazby here, to practice it. Verse 10, that literally the word do. Ezra, he, Ezra set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. He did it. He did what it was said. He did what was said in the scriptures. Studying the Bible is of very little value if it's not followed up by obedience. Again, by God's grace. Disobedience. You know what broke Ezra's heart in chapter 9? Go to chapter 9. Ezra has a broken heart in chapter 9 like I've never seen before. Do you know what breaks his heart in chapter 9? Disobedience to the Word of God. He's so in tune with obeying God. When people disobey, it rocks his whole world. Look at Ezra 9.1. He's just arrived in Jerusalem. He hasn't been there all that long. Now, when these things had been completed, trips completed and certain other details, the princes approached me, they approached Ezra, saying, <clears throat> we've got bad news, Ezra. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. These are all people that are pagan idolaters. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves, for their sons, so that the holy race, the Israeli race, 
has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. <clears throat> Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers, the leaders, have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Ezra gets there, and he finds out all this news, this bad news. Now, why is this wrong? Why is it wrong for people to intermarry other peoples from different nations? Why can't the Jews do this? It's because the people in other nations were pagan idolaters, and every time this happened in Israel's history, they led Israel astray. They led Israel to their gods, the same thing that people today marry and should marry only believers. Same concept. It's always been that way throughout the Scriptures. Old New Testament never changed. <clears throat> they will lead them away to false gods, and God warned about this repeatedly in his word, and Ezra knew that word, and Ezra knew well what the consequences would be. Notice his reaction. Look at verse 3. Ezra hears, <clears throat> Ezra hears the news, and he says, When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and I pulled out some of the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen anybody react like this to disobedience of the Scriptures? Have you ever, have you ever reacted like this? Ezra was beside himself with anguish. He tears his robe. He tears another garment. He pulls out some of the hair of his head. And he's so, he's not insane. He's in anguish. He pulls out some of the hair of his beard. How do you think that felt? Try it and see. <laughs> Don't try that. Somebody will say, Mark said to pull out your beard. He's absolutely appalled at the disobedience to the word of God that this could even happen. He's appalled. And then he prays. That's prayer of confession. In the rest of the chapter, look at verse 6, for example. He says, but I said, oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. This is embarrassing. Verse 10, he says, now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. We're talking about obedience to the word. And a person filled with the word of God will be disturbed greatly. When that person disobeys God's word or when somebody else does. We shouldn't put it on somebody else first, though. That should first be on us. Now, there's something else in chapter 9 I want you to see. Look at verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. Now, what do these people all have in common that have gathered together? They're all distraught about disobedience to the unfaithfulness of the people. What do they have in common? They all, they all tremble at the words of God. <clears throat> they all tremble at the words of God. That's a phrase you don't hear. When's the last time you heard the phrase, tremble at the words of God? Do you ask somebody, do you tremble at the words of God? Nobody says that. And yet he says it here. They all they tremble at the words of God. They're so distraught over what's happened. You know, a person so taken with God's word is going to be this way. Distraught about disobedience. And then it goes on to say uh, that... That, uh, that, well, I want to ask you a question. Is that how we, we are acting today? Is that how we are? Are we distraught when we disobey God's word? It's a frightening thought here. That's what the word means. When it says they're trembled at the words of God, they're frightened to disobey the scriptures. How do we feel about that? Obedience also shows our, shows our love for the Lord. Not only are we appalled at what we do, but it shows that we love the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments, listen to this, he who has my commandments and keeps them, obeys them. He is the one who loves me. He loves me. Verse 24 of that chapter says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. What's it going to be? You have, 
Either choice. You either keep God's word showing you love him or you don't showing you don't love him. We must obey the word. And the fourth activity, and finally, we must teach the word. Verse 10, we must teach the word. That's what Ezra did. He taught statutes and ordinances in Israel. He didn't wait until he lived in Israel. He started that in Persia, Babylon. He taught the Jews there. And then he taught again when he got to Israel. Now, this word teach has the idea of training as well as educating. Not only lecturing people. That's not all we do. Train people as well. We disciple people. We don't just lecture them. The teacher of the word is also involved in the lives of the people. That's the emphasis in the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. That's what we're to do. So there should be one-on-one mentoring as well as teaching publicly. Now you say, well, I'm not a Bible teacher, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a pastor, therefore I don't have to worry about teaching. Yes, but if you're a parent, you have to worry about teaching. Because Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall teach these words of God diligently to your sons and all your children. And she'll talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. It looks like it's a way of life in the home. Not only by words, but example as well. You're te- if you're a parent, you're a teacher of the Word of God to your children. What about if you're single? I don't have children. There's no one you can disciple. Not the first person you can disciple. You should disciple somebody out there. You should share the Word of God with somebody. What about lost people? They don't know the Lord. Guess what? They need to be taught the gospel. There's so many ways that we become teachers of the, of the scriptures. It's a great responsibility. Now, Ezra, as we looked at Ezra, he's considered to be the first scribe, of, official scribe in the Bible of, of studying the scriptures, of men who specialize in the study of the scriptures. Turn to Matthew 23. That goes on into the New Testament. You even see scribes. In the New Testament, you've read those words when you come to the New Testament, the scribes, the Pharisees, and so on. But usually, these guys are following in the footsteps. They should have been following in the footsteps of Ezra, but usually they don't have that same determination, that same fixed heart, that same resolute heart that Ezra did. Look at Matthew 23, verse 1. Matthew 23, 1. It says, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes, where do we hear that before? Ezra. The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, they are authoritative teachers of the word, of the law of Moses, just like Ezra was. Therefore, Jesus says, all they tell you about the law of Moses, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say and do not do. In other words, these guys aren't li- they're teaching the word. They're not living the word. And, it, and it's just the opposite of Ezra 7.10. It shows that people can teach the word without being, being really committed to it. Here's the order. The order is this. Prepare your heart. Study the word. Obey the word. Teach the word. And don't get that out of order. As, now think about Ezra's commitment to the word. We'll close in a minute here. His commitment to the word led him to do a number of things. First of all, <clears throat> it led him to trust the Lord in the long, dangerous journey from Persia to Jerusalem. Had he not been a man of the word, he wouldn't have known about God's character of faithfulness. But he studied it, and he knew God would take care of him. It also, his commitment to the word also caused him to weep over sin and confess it in chapter 9. Why did he do that? Because he knew what the word said about sin. It also caused him to call people to separation from idolaters in chapter 10, which we didn't have time to get to. His whole life is influenced by the word. His character is shaped by the word. Everything he does is influenced by the word. 
and the result can be, can be seen in real-life situations. That was Ezra. That's his life, a man of the word, a man committed to the word, and therefore a man committed to the Lord. But where do you and I stand in relationship to the word of God? Think about this. Where do you stand? Are you committed to the word of God? Have you made it a fixed rule of your heart that I'm going to pursue this word of God? Is that the longing of your heart and your soul? Do you take the time to read the scriptures every day? Or is it just somewhere low on the priority list? Are you also a doer of the word? Not just one who reads it, but you actually practice what it says by the grace of God. Have you ever influenced anybody with the message of the scriptures? Think about this. Is there anybody in your life you've ever told anything to about the scriptures? Is there anybody you can think of right now you can share the scriptures with? This is a responsibility laid upon every single child of God. Ezra 7.10 says, The good hand of God was upon Ezra. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we are grateful to be here today to have your word in our life, to have it as a gift from God, to have it the inspired word in our possession, Lord, and you bless us greatly with this, to have your salvation in Christ, to know you, to be able to see what you say, to be able to live what you say. God, give us the grace to do that. Help us to be examples for others. Help us to teach the word accurately and properly so you would be honored and exalted. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. And go ahead, Steve. <laughs> Let's all stand together and we'll sing Be Thou My Vision.